It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hey everyone, it's James Creppy with the Oregonian and Oregon Live, bringing you another edition of Ducks Confidential. We'll get into the NFL draft pretty heavily in this edition of the podcast, as obviously uh, just happened this weekend, and Justin Herbert led the way of four former Oregon players being drafted, six others ending up as undrafted free agents. So we'll start off with just the who and where and get into the conversation on Herbert but Herbert leads the way as the number six pick overall, headed to the L.A. Chargers. Obviously a pretty uh, tremendous accomplishment to end up being a top ten pick. Largely expected, sure, but nevertheless, uh, it had to happen, and it did. So it's a great accomplishment for Herbert. It's a great accomplishment for Oregon football, and we'll get into kind of more on that conversation in a moment. After Herbert was picked, it took until Saturday for the next duck to come off the board, and that was Troy Dye to the Minnesota Vikings going in the fourth round. Only a little while later, Shane Lemieux ending up to the New York Giants, also in the fourth round, and Jake Hansen goes to the Green Bay Packers in the sixth round. Then there was the question as to if and when Calvin Throckmorton, Jawan Johnson, and Jake Breland would get drafted or would have to go undrafted free agent. They were all undrafted free agents. Uh, Throckmorton and Johnson, along with Gus Cumberlander, all headed to the New Orleans Saints. Breland headed to the Baltimore Ravens. Brady Aiello going to the Minnesota Vikings to uh, rejoin with Dye, uh, but as an undrafted free agent. And Bryson Young going to the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, We're still waiting to see if uh, Dallas Warmack or Lamar Winston Jr. end up getting camp invites or... uh, undrafted free agent deals but at this time no news on that front and because this year is so unusual in that there isn't uh, obviously physical camps to attend and there's uh, already some teams beginning off-season voluntary off-season programs and rookie programs and those things virtually uh, insofar as just the implementation of the playbook and things like that uh, literally some have already begun today well it's hard to know Will te- in in the old model, the way things used to be, uh, in any other year, you would have had camp invites where guys didn't necessarily sign as an undrafted free agent, but they might have been invited to a camp. They get to see them on the field for a day or two and then make a decision as to whether or not they want to extend an offer uh, to retain that player or if they just kind of bounce around a bit. Like I say, with a virtual camp's, I'm not sure how teams are going to handle that this year because you're not judging the player on what they're doing on the field. That's kind of the whole point. Uh, A camp invite to a player who you're not able to judge physically, 
uh, given that everything's being done electronically and virtually, I'm not sure if teams are going to extend those invites this year because just from an integrity of information standpoint, it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense uh, unless a player is under contract to do that. But again, we'll, we'll see uh, on Warmack and Winston in particular if they end up signing deals or uh, getting invites at some point or another when things resume. But starting off with Herbert, and obviously, a, again, a, <clears throat> a great accomplishment, a great situation for him to end up with the Chargers. I, I thought heading into the draft that L.A. was the most likely destination. It was either there or Miami. Uh, I thought that all along. I thought it was 50-50. And of the two options, I thought that in a ideal world, uh, that by based on the skill position players that the Chargers have compared to who the Dolphins have, uh, based on the other personnel on the defensive side and just which team is more prepared and, and more ready to compete in a division, compete for a playoff spot uh, in the AFC. I thought the Chargers were ahead in that regard, uh, and I thought that was a better spot from just an, anybody walking in at the quarterback position, regardless if it was uh, Justin Herbert or Tua Tungabailoa. And I also thought the Dolphins had probably invested a little bit more in Tua, and the Chargers had probably invested a little bit more in Justin. And lo and behold, everything managed to hold true. Uh, after all the pre-draft kind of speculation, and, and it's customary rumors and smoke screens. Every year it happens, so you can't say like, oh, well, it was just crazier this year. No, it, it happens every year. It happens every year. We may, here in Oregon, uh, may be looking at it more this year because we knew that Justin Herbert would be going higher in the draft, so it led to more speculation. But if you noticed in the week to week and a half before this year's draft, the conversation that was had about two months earlier at the Combine and around the Combine a little thereafter, all of the back and forth and speculation and conversation was about Justin versus Jordan Love. And certain analysts, like Mel Kuyper Jr. in particular, had held true to form the whole way. And it said, Herbert's a more talented player, and he's a better fit, an immediate fit in the NFL. He's going to give you immediate returns wherever he ends up. And, hey, you know, there are people who are in a rush to turn the modern NFL into everybody playing like Patrick Mahomes and Lamar, uh, Lamar Jackson, and that's fine. But there are also a lot of people in the NFL who would like just a prototypical pocket passer with a cannon for an arm, and there's something to be said for that too. And they felt that Herbert would be the higher pick, certainly way ahead of Jordan Love, and maybe even ahead of Tua Tungavailoa. And then you had others, including Todd McShay and Lewis Riddick, also of ESPN, who were willing to go the other way. Now, whether or not they legitimately felt that, who knows, but they actually, you know, or if it was just uh, them trying to create conversation on a television show and a producer telling them to be the contrarian or whatever the case may be, that's their business. But ultimately, it speaks to their credibility uh, and their willingness to do it or, or actual belief system to say that that's the case. There's a big difference between going number six and going number 26. And that was a conversation two months before the draft and for a few weeks after the combine. And then if you noticed, in about the week to week and a half before the draft, that conversation died on a vine. That conversation was over. Nobody, nobody with a shred of credibility 
was even entertaining the idea that Jordan Love was going to go ahead of Justin Herbert in the NFL draft. Nobody. Even people who were pounding the table telling you how great Jordan Love was only a few weeks earlier had given up that entire conversation. They, they knew they had lost. They finally heard from people who might actually make a decision uh, and whose feet are to the fire in these uh, front offices that there was no way that Jordan Love is going to go ahead of Justin Herbert. And lo and behold, he didn't. And there's a massive difference between 6 and 26. The contracts for the number 6 pick compared to the number 26 pick are roughly 50% of the value, even though they're both in the first round. Doesn't mean Jordan Love can't have a successful career. As we know, there are guys who fell to that spot in the draft, or a lot lower, who had tremendous NFL careers. But there's a massive difference in trying to project and mock a draft and inform people ahead of time as to where somebody might go and to just completely take a flyer on someone because you like their skill set, even though they're not going to contribute immediately. And, and Jordan Love ends up going to the Green Bay Packers, and everybody's takeaway from Thursday night on that front was why the Packers did it. And then that becomes an argument each way, but that's for those people to get into. Point is, the conversation shifted over the course of time in regard to Justin Herbert. Right before the draft, it was, will he go ahead of Tua or behind Tua? How do teams feel about the medical with Tua? How do teams feel about Herbert, personality, leadership, and all the stuff that we've heard for months and months and months? Largely just nonsense. But be that as it may, rubber met the road on Thursday night, and the answer was basically true to form. Miami took Tua <laughs> despite the injuries, uh, despite the medical. Clearly, they're not too concerned there. And L.A. had the opportunity to take Justin Herbert, who I think they wanted from the get-go. I don't think I honestly I don't think look Miami you know had the option of the two quarterbacks and they took Tua which is fine and I think he's a very good fit for them and makes a lot of sense I honestly am not sure that Justin Herbert would have had the same level of success in Miami as he I believe might eventually have in Los Angeles and I think he's a better fit for Los Angeles in a lot of ways and and really the same goes for Tua uh, I think he would have had a lot of success in L.A., but I think he is better fit to have success in Miami. And then L.A. has the opportunity at that point to take Justin, and they do. And I'm not sure that if they had traded up just to get Justin, that it would have been any different in that I, I don't think that if they had the choice of the two quarterbacks that they wouldn't have just gone with Justin in the first place. So be that as it may, they get the guy who they wanted. Uh, uh, Justin gets to stay on the West Coast and – Good for him and good for the Herbert family because in speaking to Justin's parents after the Rose Bowl, uh, waiting outside Oregon's locker room with them uh, for him to come out of the locker room after the game to kind of get that moment and, and chronicle that moment, I uh, was speaking with his parents and his mom was really excited about the possibility about him ending up in Los Angeles and staying on the West Coast because uh, we were chatting about a bunch of different things, but we were chatting obviously about the draft process and I was saying, oh, do you know where he's going to go train? Do you know what's, you know, basically what is tomorrow <laughs> at that point? Because uh, it was late on January 1st. It was nearly January 2nd at that point, quite honestly. And I was just saying, all right, so in the morning you wake up and you go where? Uh, where is everybody headed? And anyway, bottom line, uh, I know the family was very excited about Los Angeles. Uh, they were then and they are now. So great for uh, Oregon fans that Justin stays on the West Coast. 
You have a team where probably going to be able to watch uh, the Chargers with a greater degree of regularity than you would uh, certainly the Dolphins. I don't think the Dolphins would be on TV here much at all. I know that there's all sorts of weird uh, regional television allotments for, uh, especially when there's first round quarterbacks involved and things like that uh, for where their college uh, area was and stuff. But I don't think had, had Justin ended up in Miami outside of the Dolphins playing on Monday night football or Sunday night football or Thursday night football. I don't think the traditional uh, early kickoffs on Sunday that you would have seen a lot of Dolphins games out here in Eugene Springfield and throughout the uh, state of Oregon. I, I just don't think you would have seen a lot of that. But with the Chargers, I think you will see a lot of that, obviously on all the various primetime games. But yeah, I do think on Sundays, uh, in particular on the later kickoffs, I think you're going to see a good amount of Chargers games uh, with Justin Herbert, not only in year one, uh, it may not be right immediately out of the gate, but the other part of it is this. If you look at the schedule for the Chargers, and now you don't have to go every week because they haven't announced the full week-by-week schedule, but you just have an idea as to what the uh, who the opponents are at this point. You don't know the exact sequence. And obviously, we know everything is in flux right now, but let's just go with on paper as to who they're supposed to play. Obviously, in the division, you've got Denver twice, and you've got... Las Vegas twice, and I know Oregon fans are excited about the possibility of a matchup with Marcus Mariota. He still has to be, I won't even say win the job, he still has to somehow get the job from Derek Carr. So let's slow down there slightly. Uh, and I know Drew Locke doesn't mean a whole lot uh, to you as an Oregon fan, but he's obviously the starter in Denver, and they've invested quite a bit uh, during the course of this weekend to put a lot of skilled position players around him. But you've got two matchups a year with the reigning Super Bowl champions and Patrick Mahomes, who is not going anywhere for quite a while. That's going to be major television. And you know that the two Chiefs games, every Chiefs game possible, is going to be in as big an audience as possible. Now, again, we'll find out whether those are primetime games or wherever they end up being played and what time. But just on paper, those two matchups, you know, carry a lot of cachet. The other matchups for the L.A. Chargers in 2020 include the Atlanta Falcons, and Matt Ryan, who Justin watched a ton of over the last couple of years. The New York Jets and Sam Darnold, also a big deal. The Carolina Panthers and Teddy Bridgewater, where the Panthers are obviously rebuilding under Matt Rule, but Bridgewater is a good matchup. The New England Patriots and Jarrett Stidham, and they're going to be one of the more intriguing teams this year just because they didn't end up drafting a quarterback, so they are clearly backing Stidham for that starting job. But... And there was a lot of talk heading into the draft of whether or not the Pats are going to go and draft a quarterback and trade up for somebody like Herbert, and they did not, obviously. Those are all home games for the Chargers. Then you consider the road games, and here the level of intrigue is through the roof. The Chargers have to go to Cincinnati to play Joe Burrow and the Cincinnati Bengals, and I'm assuming that Burrow gets the job over Andy Dalton. I mean, come on. He's the number one overall pick. Let's just, yeah. Josh Allen. And the Buffalo Bills, the Miami Dolphins, and Tua Tungavailoa. So all three of the top quarterbacks drafted in this year's draft, their team, well, at least the Chargers will be playing the other two teams. So that's pretty fantastic television, even if those teams aren't going to be terribly good in the Dolphins and the Bengals. The the, the storyline is obvious with rookie quarterbacks, assuming that they're all starting. 
has to go to New Orleans to play Drew Brees and the Saints. And then finally, has to go to Tampa Bay to play Tom Brady. And I know that Justin was asked on, I think he was appearing with Dan Patrick ahead of the draft in one of his many interviews. And Dan had asked him, what do you do when you play Tom Brady? And, yeah, what, what do you say to him kind of thing? And it was the hypothetical of like, well, first you have to play Brady. And it was like, well, if you're playing in uh, L.A., you do have an opportunity to play Tampa Bay. So what do you do? Oh, it's no longer a hypothetical. That's first and foremost. But that's down the road. That's entertainment at that point. The first question is, how soon does Justin Herbert win the job? What does he have to do to win the job? Who is he facing? Well, if you looked at the depth chart for the L.A. Chargers, obviously there's veteran quarterbacks. At the same time, they're veteran quarterbacks without a incredible track record in Tyrod Taylor, who has now turned into a bit of a journeyman at this point in his career, and Easton Stick, who I know he's on the team and he's a guy who spent some time in the NFL, so you don't want to completely dismiss him. But if Justin Herbert isn't already ahead of Easton Stick, I mean, let's let's be honest. Uh, that's I mean, come on. So the competition will be between Tyrod and Justin, and Tyrod Taylor is Again, he's turned into a bit of a journeyman. He obviously spent time in his career with Buffalo. He was in Cleveland. He's now in L.A. How does it shake out? What does he bring to the table? How long can he hold off Herbert? Can he hold off Herbert? Well, if you go back a couple of years when Tyrod Taylor was in Cleveland, he had been traded from Buffalo in the offseason to Cleveland. And then Cleveland obviously had the number one overall pick, and they go and pick Baker Mayfield. And so Tyrod kind of finds himself in a similar position in being with a team where the team ends up using a first-round draft pick uh, to get a quarterback. That said, if you recall and go back to watch, if you watch Hard Knocks or you recall it, or if you haven't, you can watch it now and see exactly what I'm referring to. You see in the quarterback competition between Tyrod Taylor and Baker Mayfield, the dynamic there and what Tyrod Taylor brings as far as how he operates, uh, what he does on a day-to-day to prepare. And you saw that back, and that was the case a couple of years ago on Hard Knocks, and you know that it's no different now. It's no less now. So in one of the moments they captured on Hard Knocks a couple of years ago with the Browns was Baker Mayfield saying to, at that point, Coach Hugh Jackson, and obviously that's changed a couple of times since, but be that as it may, he says to Hugh uh, during one of the early stretches in a practice one day, early in camp, man, you know, Tyrod gets to the building at whatever it was, like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. He goes, man, it gets you super early. You know, it's crazy. And Hugh Jackson just turns to Baker and goes, so why aren't you here? Next day, Baker Mayfield's there at that time. So bottom line, that was a lesson for the rookie, both from what he observed and a lesson for what's going to need to be said and done on a couple of fronts. All right. Well, that's something you learn very quickly. Justin will learn that. Justin will see that. But whenever things resume and, and life gets back to some degree of normal. But in competing with Tyrod Taylor, you know it's not going to be for lack of preparation. Now, physical tools and sets and abilities and ability to run the offense and all that for the Chargers, that's above all what's going to dictate who wins the job. But again, I say Tyrod Taylor is still a, a, he's a talented quarterback. 
He's been around in the league for a few years. He's a veteran. He's been in numerous locker rooms. He knows how to win a room. He knows how to run an offense. And even throughout the course of his career, where yeah, when he was a starter, he wasn't always the most successful of players. But he didn't exactly put them in a ton of jeopardy. Uh, he did not. He's not a guy who went out there and let's put it this way: he's not Jameis Winston. Where one Winston obviously has superior skills, but the number one knock on Winston the last couple of years is he's it's almost borderline gunslinger. He makes a ton of interceptions. He makes a ton of mistakes. Tyrod Taylor, when he was starting for the Buffalo Bills, his touchdown interception ratio was not an issue. I mean, there was you know a year where again they didn't have a great year necessarily great year but he threw 3,000 yards with 20 touchdowns and six picks and the following year he threw for 3,000 yards with 17 touchdowns and six picks and the year after that he threw for 2,800 yards with 14 touchdowns and four picks so Tyra Taylor's touchdown interception ratio as far as he's not he's not going to be a guy that loses the job or loses a game because he put the ball in a spot to be in jeopardy his career completion percentage is over 61%. That's pretty good. So there's a reason why, even though he's bounced around the NFL, there's a reason why he's still in the NFL because he's competent, he's skilled, he's a hard worker, and he doesn't create a whole lot of mistakes. That's big. That's important. Obviously, his time in Baltimore didn't work out terrific, but at that point, Joe Flacco was still the starter. So he got his opportunity to be a starter in Buffalo. Grand scheme of things, he was not the reason why the Buffalo Bills did or didn't succeed at that time. Obviously, they moved on, and obviously, he moved on. Now, he was a backup in L.A. last year to Phillip Rivers. He knew that going in. That was obvious, so he really barely did anything last year with the Chargers. And at this point, he's got to be considered the starter because it would be insulting to say otherwise. Now, even with Justin being the number one overall, uh, the number one pick by the Chargers, the number six overall, you got to be honest. Tyrod Taylor's guy who's, deserves to be the starter right now, today in April. Before you, you, there's, there's times where everybody wants to usher someone out the door. You also got to be a bit realistic. He deserves to be the starter right now until Justin wins the job. Having said all that. Should Justin Herbert be able to win the job over Tyrod Taylor? Yes. Absolutely. He has a bigger arm. (laughs) Much bigger arm. And when he adjusts to and learns in the NFL, all sorts of various different mechanics things and and all the stuff that they're going to be working with uh, at that level, and he adjusts and develops further, develops his game further, yeah, his ceiling is certainly much, much higher than Tyrod Taylor's ceiling is at this point. Frankly, at this point, I think Tyrod Taylor is more or less either reached or is nearly at his ceiling because he's 30 years old. You're no longer talking about potential anymore. You're talking about just what you see is what you got. There's no more what-ifs with a player at that age. It's just this is what they're bringing to the table. Should Justin be able to surpass that? You don't have to be a Ducks fan or or even just a third-party observer to believe that. Even just common sense dictates the franchise clearly believes he can. That's why they spent the number six overall pick on him. <laughs> so we'll see exactly how quickly that happens. Tom Telesco, the Chargers GM, had said he's not asking Justin to do that on day one and put the franchise on his back and be the face of the franchise from the minute he arrives. That's not fair. That's not realistic. 
And that's fine for Telesco to say. And, and you, honestly, you wouldn't expect any GM to say otherwise. Even with the number one overall pick, you're not hearing. GMs don't go out and create pressure for their players. No matter who they are, no matter where they are, that's not the situation. There's very few drafts where you see GMs come out and say, he's our guy at this position absolutely unequivocally because there's still veterans in the room who you're paying. And they've already been in the room. They've been in the league. They've been with your organization. They, they're they there. The rookie has, you know, you spent some draft capital on him. You're going to spend a lot of money on him, but they haven't done anything in the NFL yet. They still have to earn it. Now, having said that, and Herbert will obviously be in line to get that job at some point. It's a matter of when. And that's more or less what Chargers coach Anthony Lynn said. He doesn't know. He's expected to be day one. No. And Tyrod's the guy and Tyrod's the starter. But how quickly does it take Justin to put himself in that position? Is it a year? Is it half a season? Is it a month? There's no way of knowing yet. And obviously with everything being done virtually in the interim, there's really no way of knowing right now. But obviously a very... Very nice situation for Justin Herbert to walk into. He's got a ton of skill position players to work with in Mike Williams and Keenan Allen, Hunter Henry, Austin Eckler in particular. And yes, the Chargers also drafted uh, UCLA running back Joshua Kelly in the course of this draft over the weekend. So quite a few skill position players and dynamic players, major, major weapons for Justin Herbert to work with uh, early in his career. And this has to be said. The instant he sets foot in the Chargers facility and on the field with those players, name any single one of them. I I rattled off all four of the top skill position players that are on the Chargers roster. And you've got multiple 1,000-yard receivers, and Austin Eckler nearly had 1,000 yards receiving, and he's a running back. Every single one of them is a more talented player than any receiver that Justin Herbert worked with at any point throughout the course of his Oregon career. Any single one of them. Keenan Allen is a better receiver than anybody who played at Oregon during Justin's career. Mike Williams, more talented than any of the Ducks over the last four years at the receiver position. Hunter Henry. I realize Jake Breland came on strong and was on pace to have a terrific season. It would have won the Mackey Award, all those things. Was he undrafted because of the injury, or was he undrafted because of other issues? Look, clearly there were injured guys who managed to get drafted. I'm not going to make excuses, or or it's not that's not the point. Even if, if Breland were healthy, I don't think he gets, he's certainly not first round or even second round, but he probably would have been picked, but yeah, as it may. Point is, at the receiver and tight end spot, he's going to be working with players the caliber of which he has never worked with before. And that's great news for him, and that's a great why the Chargers are a great spot. But it also speaks to a bit of the underlying issues or concerns or areas where Oregon fans were particularly uh, voiceful in, <laughs> in expressing their uh, frustration or displeasure with Oregon's offense the last couple of years. And whether it was they wanted Justin to run more, which I'm not even going to go down that path for the umpteenth time, but they just wanted, they always wanted more. They wanted more passing yards. They wanted greater uh, completion percentage. They wanted more touchdowns. Whatever the case may be, 
everything was always more, more, more because you have a player of unbelievable talent at the quarterback position. Naturally, you want to maximize that. And there was the feeling among a pretty significant portion of the Oregon fan base, who I heard from on a regular basis, either through social media, emails, and every which other thing, expressing that they're not doing enough, that Oregon's not doing enough to maximize Justin's potential and Justin's abilities at the college level. And while that was all well and good and fair, I make the point now at the NFL draft and after seeing exactly where he ends up and who he's going to be working with, that you have to, again, contextualize that the other top quarterbacks in this year's draft look at what they had to work with in terms of skill position players. I'm not going to get into the offensive lines because, look, the offensive line at Oregon was terrific. And whether or not every one of them was drafted or not or where they were drafted relative to Alabama or LSU's offensive lines is a moot point. At the college level, they played great together, period, end of sentence. But at the skill positions, look at what LSU's wide receiver core and its running back and Clyde Edwards-Alaire, look at where they ended up. And then there are guys who came back who obviously are going to be expected to go very high next year. Same thing for Alabama. Look at where those guys ended up and look at what next year's draft where they're already mocking multiple first-round picks at receiver. Look at Clemson. And yet, Trevor Lawrence is obviously expected to be one of the top two or three picks next year, depending on who needs a quarterback, in next year's draft. But look at T. Higgins come off the board pretty early and that they've got Justin Ross, who is also expected to be a first-round pick. And Travis Etienne, who whether or not he's a first-round pick or later, is, again, moot point, the, sca- the caliber of position player, caliber of weapons that the quarterbacks in the same breath, in the same conversation as Justin Herbert over the course of this year's draft, next year's draft, even last year's draft, all of these quarterbacks had more to work with than Justin did. And that's not a discredit to him or a criticism of him. And frankly, it's not a discredit or criticism of the Oregon coaching staff today. If Oregon fans want to be upset that the number six overall pick they feel didn't do enough at the college level and that Oregon didn't have enough success with Justin Herbert at the college level, if you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at Mark Helfrich and that staff. Be mad at Scott Frost. Be mad at the wide receivers coaches of that time and era. Those are the guys to be frustrated with. Not Mario Cristobal or Marcus Arroyo or Justin Herbert. It's what they walked into and what they inherited as a coaching staff now. But did they not maximize what they had to work with now? Dylan Mitchell set program records, and Dylan Mitchell ended up getting drafted late, but getting drafted, and made the squad in Minnesota, which credit to Dylan for that. But he had drop issues, and Oregon dropped the ball more than any other team in 2018, and they still managed to have all that production, and at a receiver where he was the go-to guy, credit to him, But at the same time, every team they were playing knew he was the guy. And they still managed to have that degree of success. Now, if you want to tell me they could have, would have, should have won one or two other games, been better than the Red Box Bowl, all right, well, maybe. But be as it may, they got to where they got to. And they worked with what they had. And by the way, C.J. Verdell still ran for 1,000 yards. 
and had over 300 yards receiving, which very few running backs have 1,000 yards rushing and 300 receiving in any given year. That was 2018. In 2019, to revamp the receiving core and add and infuse more personnel into that position, they added a grad transfer in Juwan Johnson, and they brought in, obviously, a great crop of talented freshmen that they were looking forward to working with. Well, out of the gate, we all know in the season opener, Juwan's hurt, Micah Pittman's hurt, Brandon School is hurt, and Cam McCormick ends up missing the whole season. Now, obviously, he missed basically the whole season in 2018 as well, but you were looking forward to having him. Well, you try to revamp the position, and most of the guys you were relying on to revamp the position in a very meaningful game early in the season weren't there. And you hold on in that game until the final minute. And that's the fault of the offense? I mean, frankly, they maximize in a pretty big way. Now, the games thereafter where guys are still hurt, you don't worry about Nevada and Montana. Only, this quarterback had more passing yards, greater completion percentage, better touchdown-interception ratio in his senior season, despite the fact that Juwan Johnson did not end up getting drafted, that Jake Breland did not end up getting drafted. Now, maybe, he, again, the injury is a, a factor there. Maybe he would have been, maybe he wouldn't have been. We'll, we'll, we will never know. And again, going undrafted doesn't mean you're not going to ever have success at the NFL level. I, w- I hope they all have a ton of success. But my point is, is that he did not have C.D. Lamb to throw to or Devontae Smith to throw to or Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson to throw to or T. Diggin, T. Higgins and Justin Ross to throw to. These were not the weapons that Justin Herbert had at his disposal throughout the course of his career. So I know everybody throws around and looks at Oklahoma's offense and boy, that spread and that's all these yards and look at how fast they go and look at what you know, any which quarterback could walk in and do all these things. Yes, but look at the skill position players that they had too. It's amazing how good a quarterback can look when they have people to throw the ball to. And look, we'll see what Johnny Johnson third and what Jalen Red and what Micah Pittman end up turning into and where they go in the drafts in the years to come. We'll see. I hope again, I hope they all have tremendous careers at the college level and pro level. Doesn't make a bit difference to me. I hope they all have success. But the point is, is in the, you're putting a, a quarterback in the conversation with these other quarterbacks. Look at the weapons that they had to work with and how much, let's put it this way, when you talk about, boy, his ability to throw over the top, his ability to find guys in space, the ability to, throw, to thread the needle, all those things, the receiver has to be on the other end of those things. If the receiver can't create separation, either doesn't have the speed or doesn't have the ability, what do you want the quarterback to do? How do you suggest he get the ball to a guy who can't create separation <laughs> or doesn't have the size or whatever, the, or whatever the case may be? Or in 2018, if they did, they dropped the ball. Whatever the case may be, how do you, what do you want the quarterback to do in some of these spots? It's not realistic. So I mention all that now because Justin Herbert will work with more talented skill position players the instant he sets foot on the field with the Chargers than he ever did with the Ducks. And that speaks to the quality of the situation he's walking into, but also speaks to the validity of the criticisms of Oregon's offense over the past couple of years. Even if you didn't like everything that Marcus Royal did, and many didn't, and that's fine. That's okay. But just contextualize your criticism. 
did he not maximize and get a lot out of what they had to work with? I think he did. And did Jake Breland's ascent not happen under his watch? Credit to him for that. Did using Juwan Johnson when he got healthy and putting him in spots to be really effective? That happened too. Dylan Mitchell setting program records. That happened too. Johnny Johnson, after a year of having drops, credit to him for being a prolific weapon for Oregon this past season. And we'll see what next year holds for him. But bottom line, this coaching staff the past two years did not have a litany of first and second round picks to work with at the receiver position. And that's not a criticism of them. They got a lot out of what they had to work with in terms of talent. They didn't go out and recruit every single one of these guys. Some were transfers, but as far as the signees, again, if you want to be critical of Oregon's offense and its relative success under Justin Herbert throughout the course of his career, go back and scream about Mark Helfrich and that staff and Scott Frost. But don't point the finger, in my view, you don't point the finger at Mario Cristobal or Marcus Arroyo or Justin Herbert for what they managed to do the past couple of years. What they managed to do with the caliber of skill position players they had to work with was pretty fantastic. And we'll see, like, where, again, like I said, we'll see where Johnny Johnson or Micah Pittman eventually, but let's face it, I mean, Micah was not around for all that many games as his freshman season due to multiple injuries. So it's, it's hard to really give a huge boost to the caliber of skill position as a whole to what Justin had to work with because he didn't get to play with Micah a lot, unfortunately. And we'll see where C.J. Verdell ends up getting drafted, but when Eno Benjamin is going late in the draft, I think you can see that clearly it's a tough road ahead for any running back, including Verdell, to be a highly, highly drafted player in today's NFL. So point is, he's going to have a lot of weapons to work with at the pro level, and he didn't have as many weapons to work with at the college level. And if you look at first-round picks, and I'm not going to say first-round entirely because Jordan Love, like I say, is still first-round this year. If you look at top 10, top 15 quarterbacks the last several years, yes, Daniel Jones, obviously at Duke last year, one was a natural comparison to Herbert for myriad reasons, but he's a guy who didn't have a ton of skill position talent to work with throughout his career either. Outside of him, you look at several of the other top first-round quarterbacks the last several years, most of these guys were surrounded with great players as well. And that's great for them and their teams. But again, it just speaks to my point that the criticism of Oregon's offense was never contextualized entirely because people didn't want to, and fans don't want to criticize their own players, their own team. And I get that, and that's fine. But it's not, and I'm not criticizing, by the way, Dylan Mitchell, Johnny Johnson, Jalen Red, or anybody else in Oregon's receiving core. This isn't a criticism like they're no good. No, this is contextualizing and saying, they may be good at the college level. They may have been really good at the college level. Again, Dylan set program records. But there's a difference between being good, even really good, at the college level and being a monumental NFL caliber talent in the first or second round of a draft. And those play, it's a matter of not as good as. And that's the point. Oregon's skilled positions were not as good as Oklahoma, LSU, Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, 
the last few years. Now, having said all those things, what does it mean to the future? How will Oregon go about correcting it and fixing it? Well, I think they've got a lot to work with and a lot to potentially shift in that conversation in the years ahead. In a big way, I do. I think Mario Cristobal and his staff are already well on their way to adjusting that. Across the board, by the way, not just at the receiver position. But one of the other things that stuck out to me from this year's draft was the Pac-12 had four defensive linemen selected. Four. And they were all picked, by the way, on Saturday. Four defensive linemen. If you are going to shift the conversation, if you are going to be a more relevant conference in college football and have teams compete in the college football playoff and compete for national championships and be in that conversation, you have got to start in the trenches. Quarterback position is a big help, but if you can't create disruption and big plays on defense in particular and have a serviceable offense, then you have no way of contending at the national level when the powerhouse programs elsewhere all are loaded with those caliber of players. Who's going to shift the conversation for that in the Pac-12? Oregon's got to be at the top of the list because Kayvon Thibodeau is already on campus and is around. And he showed it as a freshman, and we'll see what he does as a sophomore and as a junior. But he already showed it. That's how you shift the conversation on that side. And, yeah, there's other areas of talent and position as well that Oregon already has on its roster. Now, offensively, and they've got C.J. Verdell. They've got other running backs coming in for the years to come. They've done well recruiting the offensive line and clearly can get a lot out of guys and be a terrifically coached uh, and perform really well as an offensive line. At the receiver position, they brought in several, again, back you know with the freshman class this past season. We'll see what new wide receivers coach Brian McClendon is able to bring in in this year's recruiting class because that's the number one position of need. And he is a renowned recruiter who has had a ton of success recruiting both at Georgia and at South Carolina. He coached great players at both places at the skill positions. That's what you want. So you found an area of need that you needed to address. They're going out and addressing it. Who else in the Pac-12 is going to be able to change that conversation for themselves and for the conference outside of Oregon? Right now, today, personally, for my two cents, I think the only other team that's even capable of it is USC. Because I don't think Washington today, the way they're set up today, is in position to do that. Not for the long, not with a sustainable model. We'll see. We'll, you know. Maybe Jimmy Lake is able to put it together with his staff. We'll see. And I'm not telling you that they don't have any skill position talent. Obviously, they do. My point is, is look at where some of Washington's better players, supposedly, went in this year's draft. Some of them went undrafted. Whether they were skill position or linemen or whatever the case was, some of their supposedly better players didn't get picked that high. So for all the talent they had on paper, it was on paper. It wasn't next-level, high-caliber talent, in the NFL's opinion. Who else in the league is recruiting at that level and has that caliber of talent right now? Truly, who? 
There was a time that Stanford would have a player or two, but they don't appear to. Cal had a couple of defensive guys. They were later picks, but nevertheless, they got drafted. But nobody in the offense was sniffing the NFL. Look around. The opportunity is there for the taking for Oregon to address a lot of positions of need and upgrade itself for its own self, but also put itself in a position to compete and be sustainable at the top of the Pac-12, and particularly in the Pac-12 North, and to bring in the caliber of players that are going to be future first and second round picks at a lot of these positions. We know Panay Sewell is going to be sought after as one of the top picks in next year's draft, and we and you can already write off, obviously, that he's very much going to be entering next year's draft. I mean, let, let's – I mean, I don't, you'd be a fool to suggest that he's going to be around for four years. Come on now. And that Kayvon Thibodeau could be the year after that. Well, Oregon's got two unbelievably talented players in that regard. How do they add to that? Those are cornerstone pieces to an offensive and defensive line, respectively. They feel quite good about the quarterback position with Tyler Shuck, and we know Anthony Brown coming in, and obviously Jay Butterfield as well, and Robbie Ashford, and et cetera, all right, for years to come. They've got some talent at running back. They're revamping at receiver. Defensively, they've got a loaded secondary, and Kayvon has a cornerstone on the D-line with Obviously, some reloading going on at the linebacker position, but plenty of talent there, as we all know. That's how you're going to shift the conversation, where 15 out of 32 picks in the first round come from the SEC. The only program, other than Clemson or Ohio State at the moment, the only program outside of those national powers who have already won national titles over the last couple of years, who have been in the playoff repeatedly already, who is outside of that conversation and outside of that region, the only program who's not there yet who's going to change that conversation is Oregon. That's it. Now, that's opportunity. They still have to do it. We'll see. But with that, that wraps up this edition of Ducks Confidential. We will see you next week.